Today, we take a look at three different hauntings. Each one exploring their own theory of what ghosts actually are. And all three take place in my hometown of Sacramento, California. We're going back to Cali today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I really, really do. Let's go ahead and get started here because we got three stories to cover that all take place in Sacramento, California. The town I'm from and the town that I just left. I was on vacation there for three weeks. These ones I picked because they're actual, not only are they all located in the same geographical area, but they all are different as far as what people think ghosts are or what ghosts might be. So for our first story, let's hop into Jason Jalopy because we're just going to be driving around Sacramento. Sunny, sunny Sacramento, the city that never sleeps. And we're in the Jason Jalopy. It's like a, how did I describe it before? Oh, a chitty chitty bang bang car. Just imagine that. Just slowly going through the street on metal wheels, totally tearing up the pavement. But we don't care because we're just there for a little bit. And then we're going to go our separate ways. We are on J Street in Sacramento. So Sacramento is one of those cities that isn't very imaginative. All their streets are pretty much just numbers and letters. And so we're on J Street, so that's about in the middle of town. It's, it is incredibly unimaginative. So if it's in the middle of the alphabet, it's in the middle of town. It, I think X, X Street is right on the outskirts. I don't know if there's a Z Street, but there should be. Now, this story takes place before the 1950s. You're like, that's quite vague. And again, we've talked about this before. The less details we have, generally, the more skeptical things can be. Or the more skeptical we should be of things, but this is takes place before the 1950s. So it could have been in the year 16 AD, could have been 1949. It actually took place in, in the general decade of the 40s and the 50s. We're not going back to like native times. So where was I going? Oh yeah, so pre-1950s, a family moves into a house. You have Roland Johnson, big fan of Limp Bizkit. <laughs> it's Roland Johnson, not Roland Johnson, but his wife and he has a four-year-old daughter. They all live in this beautiful Victorian apartment building. It's it, it, That kind of kept throwing me off, but they live in a beautiful Victorian apartment building. Maybe it was a Victorian house turned into an apartment building. I don't think Victorians had apartment buildings. But anyways, okay, let's, let's forget the details that don't make sense, because I want to get to the meat of the story. Take off our skepticism hat. Let's explore this story. So, there's this little girl walking around the house. And the little the four-year-old girl keeps talking about this dude named Sam. She'd be like, Mommy, Daddy, I met this guy named Sam, and he's so nice. He's, like, super tall, and he has a beard. And the parents are like, uh, is there someone creeping around our house talking to our little girl? She's like, no, he's totally fine. Like, we just hang out. And he wants me to go into the basement. Roland is like, uh, it's not a good idea. He has his hat on backwards, big baggy pants. He's like, that's not a good idea. Little lady, don't go into the basement with anybody except your mom or your dad and be kind of suspicious of your mom because I think she's making meth down there. But definitely don't go into the basement with a dude you don't know, even if you know his name. He still don't do that. But she's so convincing over the course of time. She's constantly bringing up Sam in the basement. The, the dad's like, you know what? I'm going to go see what's going on in the basement, which actually you should probably do right away. If your daughter tells you there's a man in the basement trying to get you to go down there. 
You shouldn't just blow it off being like, ah, there's no monsters under your bed. Because there might actually be a man named Sam in your basement. But anyways, so him and his wife and his four-year-old girl decide to go. The dad says, I'm going to go into the basement. And the wife and the daughter pretty much tag along. So they walk down the spooky, spooky steps into the basement. This is the 1950s, so the light bulb hadn't been invented yet. No phones, nothing. They're walking through with candles. And they have a pitchfork. Getting ready to pitchfork somebody. They get down to the bottom, they get into the basement, and they realize that they're not alone. They're like, oh, maybe our daughter was onto something. Maybe our daughter isn't as stupid as we thought she was. Because he sees a shovel laying on the ground, right? Roland, Roland, <laughs> Roland looks down and he sees a shovel sitting on the ground. And he picks it up, and then they all see a man standing in front of them. This is how they describe him. He's a tall man, dressed in all black, with a long white beard. Normal human face. They don't have to go into how, you know, like his fingers were extra wrinkly. Just like a normal human. Just a little taller, dressed in black with a long white beard. And they're looking at him, and he points to a spot in the ground. And the dad is just standing there with his shovel. He's not swinging it at this dude. He's just standing there with his shovel. And the dad decides not to dig. He's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Now, it's kind of weird to to pick up a digging instrument and then someone say, hey, can you dig here? And be like, nah, I'm just going to stand here with the only thing in the basement that can be used to dig and not dig. But Roland decides not to dig. And at that point, the tall man, the tall spooky man, his eyes turn, quote, fiery red. So I don't know if like flames are shooting out of his eyes or they were like glowing red, like Goosebumps television show or something like that. Or it just that his eyes looked mean. But they, they were glowing a fiery red. Family takes off. <sighs> He's pushing his daughter and his wife out of the way. He's like, men first! Pushing him out of the way. He runs up the stairs. He's destroying the stairs so Sam can't chase him. Daughter and mom are down there. Help us. Now, anyways, they all go upstairs. They actually end up boarding up the basement at that point. They don't ever want to go down there. I hope they don't ever have any trouble with their boiler. But they board up their basement. Never go back down there. Roland ends up becoming... Leaving... Moving with the family. He doesn't leave them there. They all move. He becomes chief of police in Tahachapi, which is a city in California. Now, I tried to verify as much as I could with this story because obviously it just sounds ridiculous. But I couldn't find that there was actually a chief of police of that name in that city. But again, we're talking pre-1950s. So it's not like they were keeping internet records and stuff like that. I will take off our skeptic hats and assume this is true just for the next part of it. In 1954, this is why we know the story took place before the 1950s, because in 1954, they decided to tear down the building, and they were going to build a new building in its place. And while they're laying a new foundation, some workers find a small bag, a little baggie, full of gold coins. Forrest Finn's treasure, you ask? No. No, it wasn't, because that doesn't exist. But, what, assuming this story is true, This story kind of highlights one of the things people think ghosts are. And those are people who died with unfinished business. That's probably the most popular version of a ghost. There's, well, two most popular versions of ghosts. One, people who died in horrible circumstances whose spirit is left to torment the living or just kind of float around with no head and stuff like that. That's one of the most common, and the second most common would be people who died with unfinished business. They're still here because there's things they weren't able to complete while they were alive. And this ghost kind of is the perfect example of that. This ghost, this man, Sam, whoever he was, 
had left a treasure there and was never able to retrieve it as a living person, but when he died, he still wanted that treasure retrieved. Very, very common type of ghost, but not the only kind of ghost. Let's go ahead. We're going to hop back in the Jason Jalopy, and we're going to Antelope. Antelope is where I actually hung out a lot in Sacramento. Now, Sacramento, if you don't know it, I'm sure a lot of other cities are like this, but Sacramento is basically a giant city in the middle, and then suburbs pushing out in every single direction. So you would leave Sacramento, you would drive through North Highlands, you drive through all the stuff, eventually you have to drive through all these suburbs, you get to Antelope. Now, Antelope is actually on the verge of farmland. It's basically almost the farthest you can get from the city center. And I spent a lot of time there, hung out, that's where all my friends were, I used to hang out at Godfather's Pizza. A couple of the ghost stories that I've told took place or start in Antelope. It's a nice little area, but not for these people we're about to talk about. So where Antelope and Roseville Road meet, it's the border of Antelope and Citrus Heights, which is another place I spent most of my time. There is a bunch of, you can look at satellite pictures of it, there's a bunch of houses, uh, this fully developed area, and this large plot of land in the middle of all of it, worth millions of dollars because the area is so congested with homes, that's completely undeveloped, as far as I can tell by satellite maps to this day. Definitely undeveloped when I was there a couple years ago. And what it was... There's a reason why it's undeveloped. One, the government owns it, and two, the history behind it. This area that is now surrounded by happy, happy families living in their happy, happy homes was known as Camp Kohler. Camp Kohler was a... I'm trying to think of the right word. Basically, a holding area for Japanese Americans who were being sent to internment camps during World War II. It wasn't an internment camp itself, But it was one of the way stations. As they were bringing them up through the West Coast, they would stop off there. And then they would be sent off to other... I think the internment camp was up in Eureka or something like that. It was farther off. But it it was a way station for people who were being basically arrested because of their ethnicity. Because people were afraid that they'd be spies during World War II. And you had up to 4,600 Japanese Americans held there. And then they'd be shipped off to somewhere else. So... Nobody wants to live there. Nobody wants to buy a home that used to be a Japanese internment camp. I don't think it's like a memorial park or anything like that. I think it's just undeveloped land. There's a couple buildings. That's it. They don't really draw attention to it, but the government doesn't really want to sell it. They may have plans for the future, as grim as that may be. But this was a place where um, this was part of the process of moving people in the in, into the internment camps. So... When that was being done, there were no houses surrounding it. It was kind of off in the middle of nowhere. Like I said, it's about as far from Sacramento as you can get in the north direction. I think it's north. I'm not really good with directions. West, maybe? Anyways, it doesn't matter. It's about the farthest, one of the farthest points you can get away from the city and still be in some sort of area. Now, nowadays, there's houses surrounding it. I often talk about the book, The National Directory of Haunted Places, and I recommend people buying that. It's a great book. Check it out on Amazon. Anywhere you can get it, used bookstores have it. It's a great, great resource. I refer to it all the time. And I've met the author. Back when I was a journalism student, I interviewed him because I was looking at doing a story on him. And I've talked to him. And we talked specifically about this case because he talks about this Japanese internment camp situation in his book. But he doesn't go into a lot of detail because the people he talked to said, I don't, I don't want anyone to know about this. Like, I, I'll talk to you. Someone vouched for you. You know, you talk to these other people and they said you're really cool and you keep secrets. 
So I'll talk to you, but I don't want my address given out. I don't want anyone coming around my house. Because the National Directory of Haunted Places, one of the reasons why I recommend it, is there are addresses in it and contact phone numbers that you can go to these houses and check them out for yourself. It's a great, great resource. But he goes out there and he's doing this investigation. And this is he hears this through the grapevine and he goes out to this area and interviews them. The neighborhood is riddled with ghosts. But there's two odd things about it. One, only people of Japanese descent can see the ghosts. So you could be a Hispanic dude living in your house and a whole bunch of ghosts just standing there looking at you as you're playing your Xbox One. You never see them. Some white dude mowing his lawn, running over a Japanese ghost, just taking a nap on your lawn. You run him over, you would never know it. But then you look over at your neighbor, who's Japanese, and he's just like, doesn't even want to take out the garbage. You see him like opening up the blinds. He's like, oh. He's walking outside. He throws the garbage in, runs back inside, because one of the ghost sightings was a man of Japanese descent was mowing his lawn. Beautiful sunny day. He's mowing his lawn. There's a tree on his property, and he's mowing his lawn, and he looks up, There's a Japanese guy just sitting in his tree, staring at him as he's mowing his lawn in the middle of the day. And then apparently the the Japanese man went and turned into ectoplasm and dripped out of the tree. And it totally freaked the guy out, as it would anybody. Zach Baggins would have a heart attack if he saw that. Anyone who has anything, I don't care what your experience is with ghosts, if you were doing something mundane looked up and you saw a ghost sitting in a tree. The reason why that's so scary because that's so unnatural. Like a ghost standing behind you while you're like taking a shower. It's creepy, but it's a place where humans reside. Or if you're getting in bed, like, okay, let's put it this way. If you're getting into bed and you see a person standing at the foot of your bed, that's creepy. That's undeniably creepy, but it's not as creepy as you getting into bed and as you're getting ready to shut your light off, you see that small gap underneath your bookshelf so you have a bookshelf and it ends and then there's maybe a four inch gap before you see the floor and you see human eyes staring at you from there one is a nap both are creepy but one is a natural thing people stand at the foot of beds people can't fit in four inch gaps so one is a human one is you're like oh my god that's so scary there's a man at the foot of my bed sorry for the listeners who are listening to this in bed but There's another thing is right before that light, you flick that switch and as the light bulb is going black, you see human eyes staring at you from a place where a human being could never fit. So this guy is mowing his lawn, Japanese dude in the tree, explodes into ectoplasm. There was one where a, this family was living in this house, going about their normal business. One day, they, one of them, well, let's just say the mom for whatever reason, one of them, I don't know which one. I don't think the whole family saw it. I don't think they were moving as a snake through the house. Family live in a house. One of the people in the house looks and they see a Japanese man just sitting on the end of a bed in the bedroom. Just kind of staring off into nowhere. They boarded the room up. They just said, we're not going in there. Now, hopefully they had enough rooms. Hopefully that didn't require like the kids to share a room because then they would just get really mad and they'd be like, oh, I hate ghosts. They make me share a room with Timmy and I hate Timmy. He stinks and he pees his bed. Like hopefully they had a spare bedroom, but they boarded that one up. Now, there's other sightings of ghosts in these houses around the area. But one of the things, one, they wanted privacy. They didn't want people coming around. Two, though, Japanese culture, this might be stereotypical, but Japanese culture tends to be more into ancestor worship. So they're not going to get a priest to make the ghost go away. 
They're not going to antagonize it or set up tape recorders or bring... And again, that's a stereotype. Of course, there are Japanese people who do those things. But in general, and this is what uh, I was getting from the author too. He goes, they, that's, that's not the way that that culture deals with ghosts. They're not going to bring spirit boxes and antagonize them in any sort of way. They're there for a reason. Just stay out of their way. Don't mow your lawn. The guy's lawn is all gross. He's like, hey, man, my ancestors told me not to do any chores. He's not taking out the garbage. Oh, no, my ancestor told me not to do that. His wife's super mad. So what's interesting about this? So let's go into this thing of how this exemplifies a certain type of ghost. As far as I could tell, there weren't deaths at that holding station. So you did it. It wasn't a death camp. It was a camp that people went to, and then they moved on to the next camp. So why are there so many ghosts floating around there? And it's not just the two. There's other stories. I'm just picking out the two of them. But why are there ghosts floating around this neighborhood if people didn't actually die? One of my theories of what a ghost is, is that you don't even have to be dead to be a ghost. You could be so tormented with emotional anguish or psychic pain that you can leave that residue And then go on with your life. I talked about it before. I can come into your house and I can tell you how good your relationship is with your significant other. Like, I'm not a psychic by any means. But I can... can, You invite me over to your house, I'll let you know how your relationship is. Because I can just pick up on the quote-unquote vibe, the energy of the house. I think it's something everyone can do. I think it's something that people can train themselves to do. I don't think I have any sort of magical power. I just think that I... Am intuitive. And I think what happens is when you're fighting with somebody that you love or used to love, it, it charges things around your house. I, I feel like an idiot talking about it. I feel like I'm medium, that show where I'm like picking up a fruit and going, oh, your wife's cheating on you. It's not like that, cheating on you with the banana, but it's not like that. There's just, you can tell. And I think that people can go through so much psychological anguish that they can leave a ghost and still be alive. The guy in the tree, I don't think he was climbing trees, and then he got picked up and sent to the internment camp, and he's like, I'll never climb a tree again. I think that whatever these guys were rightfully going through emotional anguish because they lived in a country that was now rounding them up and shipping them out because of their ethnicity, they're, you're going to be pretty psychically angry. You're going to be very emotionally distraught, and you don't know how this story is going to end. For all you know, that last stop is your last stop. You don't know. So I think that the ghosts in this area aren't the ghosts of dead people. They're not the ancestors. They're actually just people who were so tormented that they psychically broke and left a piece of themselves there. I think it's interesting that they're only seen by people of their same ethnicity. It could just be that those are the people they wanted to be seen by. Like, their psychic version of themselves felt betrayed by every other ethnic group in America at that point. And they were getting rounded up and put on these trucks. And they are watching all their other neighbors, black neighbors, white neighbors, not do anything. Never trust someone of another ethnicity after that. Even, Even their tortured psychic self can't get over that betrayal. Let's end on this note. Let's end on this note here. Get your hankies ready, because this story actually kind of got to me. Kind of got to me. Maybe you're a little more hardcore than I am, but I don't know. Even when I was researching it, because I have to read a bunch of different versions of stuff to kind of get to the truth, kind of got to me. We're going back 
to the mid to late 1800s. So Jason Jalopy, we go so fast, we go back in time. 88 miles an hour, I think. Jason Jalopy can't even go that fast. It's like 25 tops. We go back in time. We are still in Sacramento, though. We're now in old-timey Sacramento. And there's a mansion there. And this mansion is populated by a little family. You have Leland Sr. So Leland Sr., people of the time considered him a robber baron which is someone who basically used very unscrupulous methods to get money. to Basically, whatever it took to get rich, he would do. Leland had his toes and everything. He was a politician. He was a railroad tycoon. He was basically a real-life Monopoly game board. Just gotta own it all. And his wife, Jane, they lived together, and they tried for 18 years to have a child. They had everything they could ever want, but they could not have a child. At the age of 39, so Leland's 44, she's 39. Very, very old. You know, that's around my age. But it's quite old to have a child. Jane becomes pregnant and gives birth to Leland Jr. So now they're like, "This our life is perfect now. Jane said the first time she ever saw her husband pray was after his son was delivered. Because he was so overcome with joy that he got down on his knees and bowed before God. Before that, it's all about him Material wealth. But once his son was born, first time she ever saw him pray was then. Humbled himself. Prayed for all the great fortune that he had been bestowed upon him. He had a son now. And Leland Jr. was the perfect son. He was the type of son that not only would you want to have, but he was the type of dude you would want to hang out with. A true bro. Super wealthy. Good looking kid. Came from it all. Couldn't stand to see anyone or anything suffer. Dude with the backward cap, baggy pants, looks like he's going to beat you up, but he puts a hand out and says, hey man, you need help? Hey, let's go hang out. He's that guy. Leland Jr. is that guy. Sitting in his mansion, one day he looks out the window and sees a mongrel, a little mixed breed dog walking down the street, legs all bashed up, matted fur. Runs out of his mansion, picks the puppy up, Calls up family personal doctor. Again, one of the wealthiest families in America. Brings his personal doctor in and says, Fix this dog, please. How can we help this dog? He saw a little poor boy once, covered in mud, all dirty. Leland brings him inside and washes him. Scrubs his boots down. And you're thinking, why didn't he just give him a million dollars? Well, he's a kid. And that's how a kid sees about fixing a problem. And the maids and the waitstaff were totally freaking out that you have this little boy here scrubbing this, scrubbing this little uh, poor boy's shoes off, cleaning him up. He just liked helping people. One of the things his dad, though, saw, his dad loved his son, but he knew that he was being raised in this incredibly rich environment. He wanted his son to be rugged as well, because Leland Sr. had grown up in the country. So he bought 650-acre plot of land in Palo Alto, California. That was all like orchards and vineyards and stables and grazing land and all this stuff. He would take his son there and just say, do man stuff. Go out and be a man. And Leland Jr. loved this activity. He'd grab a gun, he'd go out hunting, he'd ride horses, and he'd have a little like dogs next to him. He'd hunt all these animals. He loved being in the wilderness. It was something alien to him and he immediately grabbed onto it. It was his favorite place in the world. And he had a blessed childhood, and at age 15, he was getting ready to go off into the East Coast to go to college. It's bizarre to me that he's going to college at 15. Maybe it was different back in the 1800s. But And before he left, though, his parents said, Leland Sr. and Jane said, 
let's go on a trip to Europe. We're going to travel all over Europe. It'll be our last big hurrah. Then you're going to go off to college. We're not going to see you for a while. So they go to Europe. And it is a journey out of a fairy tale. They're meeting with the Sultan of Turkey. They're going to the Rome. They're going to England. They're going to all these places. But both of his parents at this point, the dad, I think, is like 60 and the mom is 54. So they're both elderly, which back then, would you, you, we didn't have all the medical advances we have. At 16, 54, you're dealing with a lot of stuff. At one point, the mom was too sick to leave, to actually go out and visit anything. So Leland Jr. would walk along the city and take notes about all the beautiful things he'd see, and then he'd come back, sit next to his mother, and tell her about his visits, tell her about all the amazing things out there. But eventually his parents did start to feel better during the trip, traveling all around, but Jane one day realizes that Leland... This story's all true, by the way. I guess I should have said that in the beginning. Uh, The mother sees that Leland looks a little pale, And uh, it kind of worries her, but he's like, no, don't worry about it, mom. Don't worry about it. And she should have worried about it because what happened was he had had contracted typhoid, typhoid fever, and he falls incredibly ill. Super high temperature, super gross. He's all sweaty all the time. The dad is getting the best doctors in Europe to come out here to see his son. And his son is just not getting any better. At one point, they're staying at this huge hotel, and the hotel manager had hay brought to the area and put down on the sidewalk and the streets outside so the boy could rest, so he didn't have to hear the outside noises. Because everybody loved this boy. He was not a spoiled brat. I know you can go, well, no one takes care of, no one puts hay on the ground when I'm sick. I gotta hear people driving down the street playing La Cucaracha. And I'm not saying people don't love you either. I don't want him to come off as a spoiled brat. I'm just saying that people were bending over backwards to save this kid because they knew that this little boy was special. He was different. Someone who came from wealth and everything and was just humble and nice. One of the treatments was they would have to put ice-cold wraps on him to keep his temperature down, and he hated it. He begged them not to do it. But they had to, and he would have to feel like this, his hot skin and then these ice-cold rags put on his skin. A very, very miserable time. But they were doing anything they could to save Leland Jr. And in the end, a couple days before he turned 16, Leland Jr. passed away. His father builds a mausoleum for him and puts it in Palo Alto. Puts it in Leland Jr.'s favorite spot. Goes back to Sacramento. One night, Leland Sr. is sleeping in bed, and his son appears to him in a dream. And Leland Jr. tells his father, You've amassed a lot of wealth and a lot of power, and you've done a lot of things to get both. But I want you to do something else now. I want you to dedicate your entire life to education. I want you to start a university, and I want you to use your fortune to help children learn. Leland Sr. wakes up from this dream, this visitation from his son who had passed away. And he takes that visit to heart. He goes out to the East Coast and looks at all their schools, meets all these officials, sees how things are done. And then he travels back to Palo Alto, starts making arrangements to have a university created. And as he's filling out all the paperwork to break ground on this beautiful, rugged land is now going to hold a major university, 
one of the businessmen goes, Hey, Leland Sr., never got your last name. Leland's right now. And he goes, Stanford. Leland Stanford. Finishes writing his name, hands it to the guy. Stanford University was founded there. And to this day, the Stanford Mausoleum is still on campus. Nowadays, it holds not just Leland Jr.'s body, but the body of his mother and father who loved him so much in life that they were going to spend death with him as well. I actually looked a lot into whether or not that story was true. Everything's true, but did a ghost visit Leland Sr. and tell him to build a university? I looked at official accounts, I looked at a bunch of ghost sites, and they all pretty much agree that as far as anybody knows, yes, a ghost did visit. I think the skeptics say he just had a dream that his son told him to do this. And then the haunted websites say, no, 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 it was a ghost. No website is saying that story is not true at all. It was a fable made up, as far as I could tell. As far as I could tell, because I was looking at like Stanford University's website, and they weren't saying, no, it wasn't true, it wasn't true. They just had like a biography of Leland Jr. and stuff like that. And they always go, some people say that Leland Sr. was visited by the ghost, but no one's out and out denying it. But that kind of brings us back to our wrap-up of ghost stories. The first story was a stranger saying, I have unfinished business here. Please dig up these coins so I can move on. The second one was people who weren't actually dead, but leaving some sort of psychic residue there. But the third story is a very common one. It's people who are still alive being visited by people who have passed away in their dreams or at night. Very, very common phenomenon. Coming, Someone coming back from beyond saying, you know, I'm in a happy place. You can move on. Things like that. This last one, though, has the particular note a little particular thing, other than just the nightly visitation, is that the ghost actually changed the person's life. It's the type of ghost that doesn't necessarily have unfinished business of their own, but when they pass through the mortal coil, when they go into this other realm, they see that if you let your loved one move in the direction they're moving in, things will not work out well. They're not coming back to correct unfinished business of theirs. They're coming back to help you Become the person they know you can be. Did Leland Jr. see when he died? Did he see a future of Leland Sr. just falling into ill health, never getting over the loss of his son, becoming a cruel businessman, becoming a cruel person? Because if the world and God could steal a young boy from Leland Sr., why should he give anyone any quarter? If, if the world can be so cruel to him, why shouldn't he be so cruel to the world? And Leland Jr. sees this and says, that's not the father that I know. I want one more chance to talk to my father. And he comes back and says, I want you to forget all of that power and all of that money. I want you to dedicate your life to education and lifting people up. I think the interesting thing, obviously, I, I remember once I had a friend who had lost somebody very, very close to them. And I said, you know, time doesn't exist on the other side. We may have to wait 40 years to see them again, but to them, you're already there. You are already next to them. They don't miss you at all. Time doesn't exist after you're dead. I don't have any proof of that. Obviously, I'm not dead, but I think things like time exist here in a mortal world. In a, when you're dead, there'd be no measurement of time. Everything just simply happens. 
So it, it would be possible that a young boy dies and experiences immediately the next 20 years of his father's life and goes, I can, I can change that because that's not the man I know and love. Ghost stories intrigue humans like no other kind of story. I'd argue that ghost stories are some of the oldest stories in human history. What happens to us after we die is a very, very popular question. Ghost stories have lasted longer than UFO stories, and they will last long after. Once aliens come down and we know that they're out there, and we're having trading partners with the glooby glops on planet X, people will still tell ghost stories. Because there's just something about them that sends chills up our spine. Even the good ones. Even the story of Leland Jr. talking to his father. There's still something intrinsically creepy about that. Because you have a man who's being told by a dead son what to do. And you go, Jason, that's not creepy. That's uplifting. Well, let's end it with this. What would have happened if he had said no? Like Roland in the first story. What would have happened if Leland Sr. had woken up and said, no, the world has been cruel and it has robbed you from me. I don't want to dedicate my life to education. I am going to do whatever I can to punish God for ruining me. In the first story, the ghost just had glowing red eyes and chased the family out. What would have happened with Leland Sr.? What would have happened if he had said no in that circumstance? How would that story have ended? We have a university now, but the story could have just ended with the ghost of Leland Jr. realizing that his, that his father was becoming a monster And one cold morning, Leland Sr. stumbles down the stairs, dies. People just chalk it up to old age, clumsiness. But it could have been something else. Leland Jr. gave him the choice to change his life. Leland Sr. wouldn't do it. And so more drastic measures were taken than just red, fiery eyes in the darkness. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. DeadRabbitRadio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.